Okay, everybody, I'm pretty excited about this one. So sit back and relax. I think this is going to be a valuable little time we get to spend together, like we always do on the pod. So get ready. It's time once again for the Pre-Accident Investigation Podcast. Howdy, friends and enemies and frenemies which is the combination, the sweet spot between friend and enemy. It is so good to have you on the podcast, and I think you're going to enjoy immensely our discussion today. It comes from our friend Brett Torrent, um, and he just casually mentioned something in the introduction of a workshop the other day, and I thought, whoa, this is worth sharing. So I scribbled it down really quickly to share with you, and that'll be a big part of our conversation. How are you doing in the midst of all this uh, never-ending uncertainty that seems to be a part of uh, every day that we have to handle? It's good that we talk about capacity, and it's good that we're constantly honing in on uncertainty and how to manage resilience, because man, oh man, oh man, do we need it right now. I have been tapping my capacity like crazy uh, just to kind of get through the day. I bet you're the same way. I mean, it's uh, it's not that I'm special or unique. That is absolutely not true. It's um, it's the world is is it's testing our ability, our patience, our desire for peace, love, and harmony, and all the stuff that goes with it. And that's an important part of uh, the discussion that we're going to have today as well. So it's it's an interesting world. Uh, there's no question about it. And we'll see what moves ahead. I've um been strangely busy. How about you? And by strangely busy, I don't mean like, like I'm doing strange things, although it does feel that way a little bit. Now, just busier than I thought I would be. It's weird. The difference between perception and reality is, uh, is when you go back and look at it retrospectively, is often quite significant. I guess that's kind of the blue line, black line. Um, deviation's normal. Uh, constant variability happens, we adapt. All those things are, I guess they're all interconnected, aren't they? And that sort of leads us to the topic of today's discussion. So we've talked before, and we probably should talk more about this. I um, just haven't thought to talk about it. But a lot of you guys are are really dealing with the idea of uh, psychological safety. And that notion comes from Amy Edmondson. And we've talked gently and sweetly about psychological safety. But psychological safety is, is very interesting in that um, I think that it's, it'd be easy to misinterpret it as um, creating a warm and fuzzy place to work. Like oftentimes when I talk about psychological safety, I'll have leaders tell me, well, you know, my door is always open. Well, okay, that's good. Um, it actually makes it easier to get in and out of your office, that's for sure. But that alone does not create psychological safety. In fact, kind of not even close. And if you look at what Amy talks about, and we can talk in great detail about this because there's much to talk about, but ultimately, when she talks about this idea of psychological safety, what she's talking about is how easy is it for you to be given bad news? Or maybe a better way to put that is how easy is it for us to stretch the boundaries push on the edges, if it were, to really disagree, to have a professional disagreement. 
how easy is is that how potentially harmful is that or is the perception of that that's an important way to look at psychological safety and that actually is less comfortable maybe is that the right word probably yeah probably less comfortable is the right word sorry i had to cough there for a second um it's it's definitely a, a, it's definitely different than just having an open door policy and it actually puts a lot of the onus for creating psychological safety not on asking workers to be psychologically confident which is kind of a dumb idea i mean that's that's just tell be braver T- tell me more don't don't be scared just tell me right i mean that doesn't actually create an environment where people are going to be more honest with you um in fact it puts the onus on leadership really creating the space which i hate to use that term but I, when i when i say space i mean psychological space physical space time resources where we can actually talk to each other where we can tell the truth and that in essence that's a really quick little run through of psychological safety i promise you i'll i'll do a a bunch more on it if if you care just tell me if you want to know more and we can talk more about it at least my interpretation of it and bring some people in we can even talk to amy if you want to right those are things we can do and get out there but that kind of leads us to the topic today so the topic today really comes from uh, brett saying he's he's thought about this a lot in his management career over many over 20 years i mean he's he's really had the ability to think about this and he's been through kind of the entire maturity curve of safety programs from zero accidents dupont to to really this kind of safety evolution that he's in now where they're looking kind of at safety more systemically more holistically you know the stuff we talk about all the time and what's interesting is that when you talk to practitioners people who do this for a living when they collect little correlated information that's pretty meaningful i mean that that that's actually tried true and tested it's not an academic research program this is actually qualitatively collected data based upon their experience and it's pretty powerful stuff i mean i would actually suggest it's really powerful stuff and what it does or what brett did was actually talk about and he looked at this over time why people don't report stuff why aren't they telling me stuff why aren't they falling in line for the you know my door's always open you can tell me anything why aren't they giving me bad news and what brett said is over time he really found four distinct reasons why this is true and i actually think you guys these are pretty powerful and what's interesting is i think this lays over perfectly into this idea of psychological safety if you want to know more then you've got to create an environment where it's okay for you to hear more it's like when people talk about speak up for safety programs which are great right there's nothing wrong with those programs at all the least interesting part of the speak up for safety program is the speak the most important part of the speak up is the up, right? We have to create an environment where they can speak up. And so that's why, uh, among assorted other reasons, I thought this was really an important thing to share. And they're really grabbable. These are the four reasons why people don't report. Number one, there's an absolute fear of repercussion. 
There's a fear of discipline. There's a fear of accountability. There's a fear that if I tell you the truth, I'm going to get in trouble for it. And this notion of actually taking personal risk is pretty powerful because if it's risky, if the potential for me to get in trouble for telling you the truth is high, it's probably better for me politically and operationally to not tell you the truth because what you don't know doesn't hurt me. And so this fear of discipline and accountability is really a, a, an important first block. This is where this discussion should start. If there are reasons why people don't report, let's start with this one first. And let's ask ourselves some questions. Have we created an environment where it's okay to give that information and not have some kind of blame and punishment, some kind of repercussions for that information? And remembering while we ask ourselves this question that if it looks like blame and if it smells like blame and it acts like blame, even if you don't call it blame, it's blame. And that the perception of discipline and accountability, the perception of blame, and you know this, is in the eye of the beholder. If it feels like punishment, it's punishment. And so we have to be hyper aware of that fifth principle in human performance, which is how leaders respond and react matters. Because that is really what this is about. If it's okay for me to tell you something bad, then I'll tell you something bad. But I want you to challenge that idea. Because I, I remember a time where I had a boss, and we had a kind of a bad thing happen. Actually, sort of administratively, you know, it's kind of the worst thing because it, it involved human resources and legal and bad things happened, right? And when I reported the event to my boss, what she did was pretty amazing. She got up and she said, well, let's go over and fix it. And she walked beside me, not in front of me, not behind me, but beside me to the office where we had to fix this problem. And that's memorable to me because the fear of being in trouble was really strong, even though I'm confident and got lots going on and don't really mind telling people the truth. It was still there. It was a real fear. What was amazing is to have the boss walk beside you and actually collectively fix the problem. That is pretty powerful. And what it signaled, it telegraphed loudly and clearly is that if it's important the truth will protect you. But that is a crafted, deliberate strategy that has to happen. So that first one of the four reasons why people don't report is fear of discipline and accountability, fear of blame and punishment. The second one, I think, is a powerful one as well. And that is we've tried and it led to nothing. So I've reported things in the past and nothing's happened. So one of the challenges is, and this is important for us to remember, is that workers can accept yes for an answer. In fact, we like to accept yes for an answer. We can also accept no for an answer because that's an answer as well, and that helps me understand where we are in this situation. The one thing I can't accept is no answer at all. And so when we ask people to speak up for safety, and they bravely speak up for safety, and nothing happens, 
not a yes, not a no, that's actually very, very distinguishing. That, 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 that actually puts the fire out. And all I need to know is that I'm going to report it and nothing's going to happen for me to realize that there's no value in reporting. That's what I think about when I think about um, employee surveys. I, I hate to pick on surveys, but it's one that comes to mind, right? The problem with employee surveys is we ask workers what they think and then nothing happens. Nothing. No feedback, no changes, no giant role. Nothing happens. And so what happens is we get really fatigued doing these surveys. And that is, in fact, a real risk when you create a program where you ask people to tell you the truth. If they tell you something, you've written them a check. If you listen to it, you've got to be able to cash that check. Remembering that yes is an answer, improvement is an answer. It, it's probably the preferred answer. But actually explaining why it's not happening, the no part of this, that's just as significant. Because what it does is it actually helps close that feedback loop so that people understand that they've given the information, we've listened to your information, we've processed your information, and here's what's happening next. So let's list them. Number one reason people don't report is fear of blame and punishment, fear of discipline and accountability. Number two reason is I've reported before and nothing happened. So actually reporting fatigue. I've tried and it's led to nothing. The number three reason people don't report things is probably the one where we have the most potential to grow. And that is, I didn't realize it was a problem. Now, we can talk about normalization of deviation. We can talk about how you frog in boiling water. You live in an environment long enough, you become blind. Is that the right word? You don't see the problems because you live with them all the time, right? And you have these. You have these in your home or in your car. I mean, there's a door that just doesn't shut quite easily. But if you lift up on it, it'll shut perfectly. And over time, you've thought, well, I'll fix that. That's, that's something I'll fix. But then over time, you just kind of learn to live with it. You just, you, it. you just become normalized to it, right? And that is a big part of this third category. Or simply not realizing that this environment could cause this harm. Not being able, re being able to recognize the risk or the hazard is uh, potentially important to talk about as well. Now, how do we fix this? Well, one thing we do is we constantly keep that conversation about risk alive. And we constantly push ourselves in ways where we're asking different questions, and those different questions actually break us out of the normalization. So instead of asking what will fail next, ask perhaps, you just make this up, but where is our system most robust? Where, where are we least likely to fail? And that actually changes the perception because you've changed the goal. You've changed the question, and you're going to get different answers. Now, hazards are tricky. And I've said this to you many times, but the hazards we identify are probably not problems because we mitigate those pretty effectively. We put controls in that system. It's the hazards we don't identify that get us, and the world is filled with hazards that are not identified. In fact, nature abhors a vacuum, right? Well, it's the same in your organization. As soon as you fix one hazard, your organization 
abhors a vacuum. A new hazard will zoom in there and become the flavor of month, the, the problem of the day. And so part of what we want to do is realize that we have to help people as best we can. We have to facilitate the conversation so that we're constantly identifying new risk. And we have ways to identify and talk about that new risk. And the best advice I can give for this third category is that you always keep the discussion of risk alive. Remembering, and this is important to remember, that the enemy of risk identification is stability. So the more stable a system is, the less risky that system appears. It really doesn't influence the hazards per se. This is kind of the ultimate recipe for complacency. The more stable the system is, the less I have to pay attention to the system. So that becomes kind of a part of the issue. And that's a big part of the issue. That's that's one that we want to definitely pay attention to as we progress through. So let's recap. The four reasons why people don't report. Number one, a fear of blame and punishment, a fear of discipline and accountability. There's a high personal risk. Number two, I've reported to you before and nothing's happened with the information. And because nothing's happened, I realize that there's not much value in reporting. So I'm not going to report to you because I've got reporting fatigue. I've tried and it's failed before. Number three, the one we just spoke about, I don't know it's risky. I didn't realize it was risky. I don't see the risk. And that actually is a big one. That one, we keep the conversation of risk alive. And then the fourth one, which I think profoundly could only come from a person in operations, it can really only come from a person who does the work. But it's beautiful. And it's powerful. And I want you to listen carefully to this one because this one, I think, has some legs on it. The fourth one is, I'm worried if I report it, you'll make it harder to do the work. That is just a beautiful statement. It's at every level, that's amazing. I'm worried if I report it, it will make it harder to do the work. Um, uh, what, What do you say to that? other than shame on us. Because I want you to think about it. Think about the number of times that you've made the administrative burden larger because of an identified potential failure. Or you've added another line to the procedure. Or you've sent everybody back to training. Or you've picked anything from column A, column B, or column C. And ask yourself the question, if people tell me something, is the reward for telling me something that you actually make it harder for them to do the job. You make them fix it. You make them do another step. You make them slow down. You make them think about that. Because from a standpoint, and this is really what Brett brought to the table, from a standpoint of a leader, that is actually an important test. That is the sort of quality check. Uh, We used to call it the ho-ho check. That's the check that you probably should ask yourself. Look in the mirror and ask yourself that question. Better than that even is actually go to the field and talk to the workforce and ask them, does this make this harder to do? Does it make it more difficult? Does it increase the complexity? Does it slow it down? Does it make it more burdensome, more boring? Right? All those things from a human being standpoint, and just in case you're wondering, 
you are a human being, all those things become stunningly important for us to think about. Those are really highly valuable pieces of data. That is, in essence, the biggest question I can think of. It's a beautiful question. I, I'll just admit it. I, I'm, I'm awestruck by it. It's, it's an awesome question. I'm worried that if I report this, it will make it harder to do the work. Wow. So what do you think? When you think of psychological safety, when you think of actually understanding and knowing what's going on, the blue line, black line, when you think of people actually reporting and the reporting culture you've created, have you thought of these four barriers? Because they're significant. And they're not hard. I mean, nothing I talked about is especially earth-shattering by any stretch of the imagination. But they're super important. The four reasons why people don't report. Number one, fear of blame and punishment. Fear of discipline and accountability. High personal risk. This is going to get me in trouble. Number two, I've reported before. I've tried. And when I did report, nothing happened. Nothing. In fact, I've tried and I've failed. And because I've tried and failed, I'm a pretty smart dude. I'm not going to try again. Number three, I didn't even know this was a risk. I didn't even realize this was a problem. I've grown so accustomed to this inconvenience that I didn't realize having to go three floors up to find an e-stop switch was a problem. Because that's been here forever. I've normalized to that. Um, I didn't even know this was risky. And the fourth one, finally, I'm worried it'll make the job harder to do. So if I report it, does it mean I have to do more work? Does it mean it'll slow me down? Does it mean it'll impact my production rate? Does it mean it'll make it harder to do the job? Because if the answer to any of those is, uh, yeah, then that's a problem. That's kind of a big problem. Those are really powerful little statements. They're simple. Uh, in fact, let me take that back. They're elegant. Simple's kind of offensive. I'm not sure simple's a, a compliment. Elegant, my friends. If someone says you look elegant, that's a compliment. They're elegant. But I think more importantly than their elegance is the fact that they actually really are helpful. They really do give you as a leader something to think about. And so when you ask the question, am I getting an accurate understanding of how work is done? Are people telling me what I need to know? Do I understand the work? And the answer to all those questions is probably no. I mean, just inherently built into our system, the answer is no. And if you want to improve that, and you do, then these are sort of the four hurdles you have to tackle. You need to make these four things better. You need to make it okay to report, and they need to not have a fear that they're going to be blamed or punished or disciplined. Uh, it, you need to close the loop. When they give you information, the most important thing you manage is the feedback to the people that did the reporting. And so the job is not over. In fact, the primary deliverable is that you get back to the people who talk to you. You have to keep the conversation of risk alive. 
You have to keep new eyes on the problem. You have to change perspective, change focus. And one of the ways to do that is change your questions. Change what you ask on your validation and verification program. Change the words in your pre-job because that actually has some benefits. It keeps the world new and interesting, but it also helps shift that perspective. And most importantly, can't say it enough time, keep the conversation of risk alive. Risk and control. What's the relationship between risk and control? Risk and control. And then finally, the big mama. Make sure it isn't harder to do the job because people told you the truth. So if your workers are worried that it'll make doing work harder, if they report information to you, you have a strong systemic failure built into that process. And in fact, it's important to understand that that is the case. And you want to really build that into your calculations, into your corrective action programs, and into the way you think. Those are the big four. I thought they were pretty important. And I really thought they're worth sharing with you. Here's what I'm going to tell you. I don't know what you're going to do with this, but I'm going to make a little sign and put it up for a while and just kind of study on it. Just give myself a look-see every once in a while. Check in on it and think, are these tests still in the forefront of operationally what I'm doing when I think about strategic deliberate improvement? Because if they're not, they need to be. That is the pod for today. What do you think? Um, it's a good one. And thank you, Brett, for sharing that with us. I know you didn't intend for this to be a podcast. You probably never even thought about it, but it seems like a good one. Until then, my friends, learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be good to each other. And for goodness sakes, be safe. <laughs> <laughs>